HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. It's the final stretch of 2022, and HRN needs your help. Become an HRN member with a donation of any amount at heritageradionetwork.org donate. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for the 2023 conference, featuring more than 90 in-person sessions and 25 virtual sessions on farming and food systems. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash conference. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it is my great pleasure to welcome back Chloe Sorvino, uh, who leads the coverage of food, drink, and agriculture at Forbes. She works on the 30 Under 30 Food and Drink List and spearheaded Forbes' Ag Tech Summits with signature events in Salinas and Indianapolis. She serves as a steward of the Forbes Union. Her work has been featured by NPR, the Los Angeles Times, and Fast Company. For the Financial Times, she shared a 2014 Best in Business Award in Government Reporting by the Society of American Business Editors and Writers for an investigation detailing the U.S. government's then-running price tag for its conflict in Afghanistan. Titled The Cost of War, it led A1 when it ran on Monday, December 15, 2014. Sorry to go back into the Wayback Machine. Anyway, Chloe joins me today to talk about her newly, newly published book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. This is a Simon & Schuster publication via Atria Books. Chloe, congratulations. Great book. Absolutely. From one meathead to another, girl, you knocked this one out of the park. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Thank you. And thank you for the extended bio. I I appreciate it. Super excited to talk about Raw Deal. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, you're one of those people that makes me feel incredibly inadequate because, <laughs> oh please, <laughs> because at 2014 you must have been about 12. <laughs> I will not share my age, but just know that I'm a year older than when Upton Sinclair published The Jungle. <laughs> oh really? Is that right? <laughs> okay then. Well, I don't feel quite as bad, but I still feel bad. Anyway, let's talk about. Let's start with what got you interested in the meat space? Because I mean, you do cover agriculture, food and drink, but that's like a very broad. Uh, portfolio. So how did meat uh, become your sort of cause du jour? Yeah. So, you know, I started at Forbes nearly a decade ago and it was on the billionaires beat where a lot of people start out there. And I was doing the valuations for the list, the Forbes 400, the world billionaires list, these signature 
net worths that you see across the world. And I was doing it in real estate, hedge funds, investing, but I was also then finding myself valuing the Cargill family and Tyson and yeah. all these different meat packers and came to this work through that and seeing how particularly in the food and agriculture industry, there has been so much concentration of wealth and power in meat. It is the most valuable and it is has the most billionaires that have been able to hoard, hoard up money, wealth and, and, and power here. But so, you know, go back to 2017, 2016, really, I did a reporting trip to Omaha, Nebraska to visit a billionaire who had carved out a particularly smaller niche. But, you know, it's the, the scale is really kind of wild. You know, I realized at that point that the top four meat packers controlled 80% plus of the entire beef industry, which is an insane, insane amount. And they had so much and there was so much consolidation that it made pretty much everyone else have, have tiny, tiny, tiny percentages. But Henry Davis is this billionaire who was the fifth largest and had about 2% of the industry. And he owned 100% of this small, small slaughterhouse. And I got to visit it. And it was an eye-opening experience yeah. in Omaha. It's a learning experience. I have also visited a cattle slaughterhouse. Uh, I went to a Cargill facility in Colorado. And lucky for me, I got a guided tour with Temple Grandin, um, but only after shaming them uh, completely because I had gone as you know part of a, a team from Food Arts Magazine. I don't know if you remember them, um, and uh, and they all the chefs were allowed to go to the slaughterhouse, but not any me or my colleague from the magazine, Barb Mathias. Wow! And I said to the you know the people who were running this uh, tour, which was this case was certified Angus beef. I said, well, if you've got nothing to hide, why on earth would you not? want me to go in there and take a look at what you're doing. And mm. they thought that one through. And about three weeks later, they flew me back out to Colorado. And I got this, you know, soup to nuts store with Temple as my guide and every department head explaining everything they were doing. And it was, like you said, a really eye-opening experience. And I was deeply grateful to them and to Temple for the experience. Really taught me a lot. But um, anyway, so let's let's get right into the business of your book, Raw Deal. So why don't we start by reviewing the obscene profit margins uh, that these, you know, four firms essentially uh, made in the last three years while we all grappled with the pandemic? Um, if you have any numbers to share, that's nice to hear. I want to talk about some of the stock buybacks, along with the gigantic increase in exports, uh, which was, you know, basically responsible for much of that profit. Um, and at the same time, as uh, listeners may remember, John Tyson. Uh, published an op-ed or a full-page ad, I guess it was, in the New York Times saying, our supply chain is broken. We're not going to be able to give you enough meat, you know, even though the freezers are full of meat and these guys are shipping this stuff out as fast as they can. So give us the, the backstory on all of that. So much to dive into there. And yes. we can <laughs> talk about each sector if you want, but really, you know, let's even just start off with Tyson because that full-page ad was a real catalyzing moment for me personally and why I wanted to write this book because here he was trying to stoke fears and also then further push workers into harm's way say hey keep them on the line but at the same time Tyson was exporting more than ever before their exports in 2020 were up 43 percent oh compared God. to the year before they exported 640,000 tons of product around the world <laughs> and you know let's let's like break that down right aside from the worker issues there. And aside from, again, stoking fears that there wouldn't be enough food to 
have Americans eating at, at their grocery stores, where in reality, there was such an excess that there was a surplus that they were able to get actually then also more more money for and, and it really helped drive a lot of the profits that they made into 2020. I mean, Tyson made $5 billion in 2020. Over that year, an 11.6% margin, which is way, way more than, um, you know, it, at the same time, it was this, it's, it's this really outsized number. But then also there had been this trend of these top meatpackers eking out more profits and, and, and consolidating their control, which has helped them really take back some share over even just the past seven years. And so, you know, in the beef industry, for example, Tyson has never really relied on beef to be its most profitable division. That's always mm -hmm. usually been chicken. But in the past five years, beef has, in part because of a lot of this consolidation that's been driven over the over the past several years, you know, beef has, has been cr crazy in terms of how much you could make on a single cattle head. You know, between 2002 to 2014, the average animal had a loss of $10 on average. But starting in 2015, you start getting $100 per animal in average operating income. So that's crazy. And, 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 and a total shift that, again, has been able to happen in part because some of these markets have become so uncompetitive. Now there are, you know, cattle is one of the few meat sectors that still has a fair amount of uh, cash purchases happening on the open market. Um, and in some of these areas now, there are only one or two meat packers that will buy cattle from independents, and that has further driven down prices and dictated what producers are ending up with at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And let's be clear that it's the packers who are making this hundred dollar an animal margin, right? It's not Correct. the nature. Oh yeah, yeah, right. I just want to make sure that people understand that, you know, this is, it's not the guys who are out there actually doing the work uh, of, you know, raising these animals. It's the uh, packers who are then, um, you know, crushing these guys in terms of price per pound that they're willing to give, because as you just said, they control the slaughtering uh, and processing facilities so tightly because of such a, a tight concentration in the market. Um, let's, let's talk about like, oh, and also, uh, for listeners who didn't tune into Chloe a few months ago, when was it that you came on to talk about the Trump administration collusion um, with uh, with the meat packers in terms of uh, writing that declaration saying that they were essential frontline workers and could not be allowed off of the job? I just want to remind people that there is another episode where you and I talk about uh, one specific aspect of of uh, how the administration colluded with these packers to maintain their profit margins. When was that, Chloe? Was that like Yeah, we did that in May, May or June. Yeah, yeah. right. So all around the investigation into how state, local, and federal officials were all working hand in hand with the meat packers to keep them open, keep them having workers on the line getting sick and keep them profiting. And, you know, at the same time when there was you know, you know, lawyers for these companies or their trade groups actually writing executive order drafts and right. you, uh, wild, wild. Yeah, it was wild. So people should go back and listen to that uh, in the wake of listening to this show, because that's a big part of the puzzle. And this, of course, fueled explosive uh, pandemic, um, you know, episodes of COVID in the towns in which these packing companies exist. Leah Douglas now at Reuters, but then at... Uh, 
at mm -hmm. uh, Fern, uh, you know, followed this extensively. And that's another place where you can learn a lot about how these workers were exploited. But let's let's go on. So so among the other <laughs> among the other, um, you know, jolly little uh sinecures that they were able to say they, they they were because of these giant profit margins there were stock buybacks right they were so they were able to like distribute a lot of money back to their shareholders um mm -hmm. that were yeah, let's talk about that too i mean yeah. so on, on top of these profits increasing for these companies and the exports increasing the dividends that tyson and jbs these publicly traded meat packers were giving back to their shoulder shareholders were growing consistently these the yields of these dividends were far more than they really had been before because they had so much cash to go around with. And at the same time, and these companies were also so cash rich that they were using a lot of that cash to buy back their shares. And yep. what that often does is it ends up raising the stock price in a way. And so these types of kind of big purchases, when you have so much wealth and power accumulated, that's again, one of the ways that these meatpackers are able then to squeeze out the smaller players. Right, right. Very interesting. All right, let's move on for a second because I want to focus on something that really interested me and which I was not so much aware of. I mean, I've talked a lot about monopolies and the monopolization of agricultural uh, industry across the board, not just in the meat industry, but if you want to talk about equipment or seeds or agrochemicals, all of these are now kind of, you know, concentrated down into three or four or five firms that control, but we, I've never really thought about the buying part of it. And you had a really interesting section of the book about what is called monopsony. Um, so can you explain what that is and how that skews the industry? So many Americans have grown up with the game of monopoly. It's a concept that we're all quite familiar with, but <laughs> monopsony is just the opposite side of that coin, so to speak. It really just means when there's one or an oligopsony would be, you know, a, a small handful of buyers that end up dictating a market. And, you know, just as a meatpacker might have monopoly power because they're selling, there right. it's one or a few sellers to the retailers. You know, the retail industry has become so consolidated, even just in the past decade, that's driven ramifications like bankruptcies of small regional players, lots of M&A, lots of corporate consolidation, all because there are grocers that are struggling to make profits amid the domination of Walmart and then also Amazon. Um, but it, it, there's some numbers here that can break it down quite, quite clearly. You know, take the $1 that is spent on meat. Okay. In 1990, a rancher would get 59% cents of that dollar. A meatpacker would get just eight cents and a retailer would get 33 cents. In 2009, the rancher was already starting to get squeezed and 42 cents of that dollar was taken. The meatpacker only had nine cents still and the retailer had taken 49 cents. Now, by 2020, you start seeing the meatpacker taking back a fair amount of the share. Now they retain 18 cents, but the retailers also maintains a significant share, 44 cents. And that just meant less and less ending up going to the producer at the end of the day. But this is all important. And, and you can also think about it from the other perspective, because I first heard about the monopsony problem from actually the meatpacking union, UFCW. I was talking to the head of the meatpacking union, um, one, of the, one of the ones that's in most of, of the meatpacking plants out there. And 
he said that, you know, we're never going to be able to solve the monopoly problem unless we also solve this monopsony problem. And, you know, when we're in negotiations with the meatpackers at the bargaining table, trying to get a better contract for our workers, trying to get more money and more benefits, stronger benefits, often we're confronted by these meatpackers saying, we can't end up giving you that because we don't have the money. We have to end up selling this stuff so cheap to Walmart, which ends up dictating the price to us. And they've seen plans and the, the union had told me, told me about how he's, he's been in plans and seen negotiations where all of a sudden, if the plant doesn't agree to a new stipulation that Walmart gives them, Walmart doesn't need to have that contract. They have pretty much any option of getting meat wherever they want. And they will very easily say, okay, no more contract. And what has to happen? At the end of the day, the plant often closes or maybe there's significant layoffs. And so, you know, I really wanted to share this part of the story because meat packers will often say that they're not able to do more to to stop consolidation or just to, to stop centralizing because they have to deal at the end of the day with Walmart, which has dominated so much of the grocery industry in just a, a two really, decades. Very or so. short space of time. I mean, really, in the, just the last I, not even two decades, I would I would suggest. Right? No, not at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it really started uh, only 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 exactly two decades ago, actually. And but the way that Walmart has then used its power to put harder, tougher stipulations on its meat packers and on its suppliers, this muscle is like worked in new ways all the time. Um, different types of requirements. It might seem petty or, or small, but they add up and they really make a difference. And there are lots of different examples, but at the end of the day, they have potentially a, a quite imbalanced system. Right, right. Well, you mentioned one thing like they, they were, I hope I understood this correctly, but for example, Walmart uh, during say the pandemic, um, they were uh, applying a surcharge to suppliers of something like 3% if there was any kind of supply chain disruption. So that would say, for example, have an impact on whether or not you allowed workers to go out on sick leave. Um, or whether you Correct. force them to stay on the line, right? I mean, stuff like that Correct. is, is going to have a really big impact on workers. Let's talk a little bit to go further into that issue. Um, you also described, like I've done quite a few shows around the class action suits for price fixing, um, you know, with uh, say Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride and so forth, who for all intents and purposes have been given a slap on the wrist. I mean, with the giant profits that you've earlier described, um, these guys get to pay, you know, $25 million uh, to settle a class action suit because they've been price fixing for the last 15 years in the poultry industry, the beef industry, the hog industry, wh what have you. But what really struck me um, was a focus uh, that you had on um, an organization called WMS. I've now forgotten what that stands for. But it was, it's like the agristats. It's sort of the, mm -hmm. the other side of agristats, right? Where they're sharing information and these companies are colluding on wage and benefit packages. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, I think folks who are passionate about meat industry or have been following some of this have seen the agristats talked about in the news over years. Some, some of these lawsuits, there are hundreds of these different consumer lawsuits or class actions or supplier lawsuits suing meat packers for 
allegations of price fixing from some of the biggest names across the food industry, from McDonald's to Wawa to Kraft Heinz to ConAgra to Nestle, pretty much any retailer or major restaurant chain you can think of has has put in some of these claims. And there already have been some significant settlements of of upwards of, you know, some $200 million plus. And some of these settlements aren't still, you know, have acknowledging wrongdoing, but the AgriStats model was then, it's a data provider at the end of the day that works with these meat packers to sell data that each of them then is also sharing data with. And so there's this sharing of information, which the meat packers are able to pay for, but the smaller producers cannot. And it's created the system where it's there's been almost a copycatting. And so I, I wanted to write about the AgriStats and a lot of the price fixing uh, allegations. But then I also wanted to write about how it's not just that these data providers have been working to make meatpacking essentially, you know, data on a, in a formula on a spreadsheet and pretty much every single aspect of how this business works. You know, these meatpackers have been trying to figure out ways to make things even more efficient over time and data providers like WMS, which is a, a Pennsylvania company called Weber, Meng and Shaw, um, name for the three partners who there are there. It's a, it's a tiny company of only a handful of, of folks who work there. And WMS, pretty much their almost entire business was doing an annual survey for the HR departments of many of the top poultry companies. And this was a scheme that went on from 2000. Mm. And this essentially was a mass compensation survey with the goal of subjugating workers, keeping their pay as low as possible, keeping their annual salaries, their employment benefits, their healthcare benefits, all of these different aspects of compensation, which are crucial. And by the way, again, horribly marginalized workers, extremely vulnerable workers, also working some of the most dangerous jobs in this country. Yeah. So let's, let's that's <laughs> taken it aside, right? But then, you know, I was just so blown away reading these thousands of pages of documents of lawsuits and different testimony that have come out over the past few years. And, you know, I should also mention, aside from the lawsuits that I write about with WMS, the DOJ has been investigating wage fixing, you know, as this case has developed and accelerated just since I started following it even. Um, but some of the things that have come out are quite stark and really paint a picture. And I want to share because, you know, it wasn't just data that was being shared with different HR folks about, you know, how to pay workers. It was then a survey that was then discussed at these secret roundtable meetings held it often in Destin, Florida. And it, it went beyond kind of typical collusion where, you know, obviously these executives were in these meetings, sharing this data, discussing it in depth for hours, but then they were also, you know, doing social, <laughs> social events together as well. This group, this, this, this compensation scheme group was then choosing between excursions at one point. I, I loved this data. They had to choose between an excursion of a five-hour party fishing trip, a tiki bar boat ride, <laughs> or a dolphin boat cruise because they didn't have enough time to collusion, to do you know this alleged collusion when they were in their conference rooms in, in Florida together. They had to also get out, get out on the water, get out in the open and, and continue bonding that Whoa. way. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, you know, they all do it. And it's not unique to the meat industry, but honestly, it is just 
uh, mind blowing that these fat cats are sucking on these big salaries. And meanwhile, the guys who are actually making the profits for them are lucky to get, you know, three days of paid sick leave. I mean, it's just, it is this, this, the whole way that we approach labor in the agricultural sector, and I suppose elsewhere, but especially there where it's like the lowest paying jobs, the most dangerous jobs, you're exposed to chemicals, you know, scary machinery, people lose fingers and arms and legs, you know, I mean, it's just, ugh, it's just unbelievable. And there's no protection really for them and, and they don't get paid for it. So um, I just wanted people to like really dial in on that aspect of it because it's just yet another, you know, head smacker. Um, we have to take a short break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Chloe Sorvino talking about the raw deal. Uh, please stay tuned for much, much more. It's the final stretch of 2022 and HRN needs your help. Our goal for the winter membership drive is to raise $30,000. Become an HRN member with a donation of any amount at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Through creative educational reporting, storytelling, and live events, HRN delivers thought-provoking exchanges about the real issues affecting our global food system. Your donation also supports our internship program, an essential part of HRN's work that educates the next generation of journalists. Donate at the $90 level before December 31st, and you'll receive a limited-release HRN t-shirt designed exclusively for HRN members by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member at any level, you'll be the first to know about special events and get news updates created only for Food Radio Insiders. Help us meet our end-of-year fundraising goal with your tax-deductible donation. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and become a member today. Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 100 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including indigenous environmental scientist and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, Scottish farmer and co-producer of the podcast Landed, Cole Gordon, best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandor Katz, Co-owners of Heritage Seed Company True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. There are two ways to attend, virtually or in person. PASA's virtual conference takes place January 17th through 19th. Join from anywhere. PASA's in-person conference is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th and includes social and networking events plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Okay, let's move on to the Batista brothers. Um, for people who don't know uh, and haven't followed this, the Batista brothers are behind uh, the largest meat company in the world, also known as JBS. 
Um, and they acquired the Swift Company, which was one of our big packers, I guess about 25, 30 years ago, and then went on a tear of acquiring uh, medium and large scale meat packers over the last 15 I guess 15, 20 years, right? And the so way not even just that, though, I will say it's actually only a decade. Oh, yeah. My it's, God. It's, 2008 was the Swift acquisition. Oh, is that right? Jeez, I didn't realize that. So, and the way they did that was to basically um, make the Bank of Brazil uh, their cash cow, right? And the way they did that was through kickbacks and bribes. Talk a little bit. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how they how they uh, managed this remarkable transition from sort of you know your average not that big company to really the giant of the world that they are now. The story of JBS cannot be understated because it is just such this such a wild saga. It is, and at the end of the day, these completely absurd elements that you think almost would exist in you know a high speed chase documentary series or movie like a you know like an ocean's eight type right. deal <laughs> uh at the end of the day these wild facts have all then led to what in america further consolidation producers continuing to get squeezed workers continuing to be put in harm's way and now a company that has these you know uh, all these instances of ill-gotten gains and different bribery that have been able to use that money and a part of it anyway to fund a lot of these acquisitions and fund the further consolidation. Also, you know, putting out meat and importing a lot of meat that that's linked to devastation of deforestation in the Amazon, importing that to the U.S. when we already have so much meat already made here. I mean, there's there's so many different ramifications and aspects of this, but I can go into a little bit just to break it down. You know, there are these two brothers, Joesley and Wesley Batista. They ended up taking over their their father's small meat company. It started out as a really tiny family butcher in Brazil, and then it grew over time. And these brothers took this over with the ambitions of making JBS a global powerhouse. And that's exactly what they've done. It's now the world's largest meat packer. It's dominating in beef, pork, and chicken. In the U.S. is pretty much the second top player. Um, but, you know, just also kind of on that antitrust line, it, 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 one more acquisition could maybe even put them over and make them even overtake Tyson at any any second, really. Um, but so in Brazil, Joesley particularly had this relationship with the finance minister and a loan op- some some loan officers at BNGS, the state funded um, bank, and they were having a kickback arrangement for years just to get you know preferential access to different meetings, and eventually those meetings are part, again, there are some 30 plus different bribery allegations that they, they were in, ended up getting charged with, but this is just one of the main ones. So this finance minister was helping them get these loans and, and some of those loans or some of these business deals, eventually J- BNDS also took it equity in JBS itself and did, did several other de- loan deals or financing deals to help fuel this acquisition spree in the US. Probably one of the most aggressive acquisition sprees ever in the US of by any, you know, foreign foreign company or otherwise. Um, and so, you know, you don't, it's not just Swift. Swift was their first iconic acquisition. Right. Um, but they bought it, Pilgrim's Pride, Chicken, uh, they bought National Beef, right? 
Is that right? They didn't buy national, but they tried to. And that was one of the few cases that the regulators did have antitrust scrutiny over. And they said they couldn't do it. That's actually why they ended up buying Pilgrim's Pride instead. Ah. Um, but Pilgrim's Pride itself is a fascinating case I would actually would love to go into because they now own 80% of it. When they started out, they actually bought up 64% of it out of bankruptcy. Pilgrim's Pride was really struggling. And that is one of those other clear instances where BNDS talked about how they were, were helping fund this acquisition. And through some of the documents I found and through a lot of the Department of Justice investigation, the SEC investigation that ended up happening into Batista Brothers, it came out that for the Pilgrim's Pride acquisition, the finance minister himself actually got a $55 million <laughs> bribe. <laughs> and not only was that bribe specifically for the Pilgrim's Pride acquisition, but it was also specifically deposited into a U.S. bank account. Nice. And so it was a U.S. bank account that still has not really come out what bank. And I've been trying to figure out what bank has been helping these yeah. folks. But, you know, there are it's not just that, you know, they, some of this finance minister and Joe Asley Batista did some meetings in the U.S. Some of these other bribes ended up transferring a one point five million dollar U.S. apartment actually in Manhattan. Um, and, and and then there, there are a lot of other crazy Somebody things. Somebody too. Like, I remember. Yeah, there was a helicopter traded. There was a 3% stake in the concession stand of a soccer stadium that had once had the World Cup at it. Um, there were fake invoices of cattle purchased. I mean, they they went above and beyond to to hide some of these bribes because not only was were these bribes specifically for these businesses, but at the end of the day, this finance minister kind of came back knocking and all of these, this, this kickback fund that Batista's had been holding in, in these accounts for the minister ended up having then to be deployed. And he came calling around Brazil's 2014 elections and ended up using this, 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 this slush fund, which by the way, also through other documents had, you know, been at some points co-mingled with publicly traded Pilgrim's Pride's accounts, even. Wow. There was co-mingling of these slush funds. You know, what you ended up having was just, I mean. It's it's mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing. And and what makes it even more mind-blowing, and I, we, we only have about 10 or so minutes left to go. And I, I just want to get at this, that the JBS does a lot of business with the United States federal government. And Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut uh, seems to be the only person who is saying anything about, first of all, let's also point out that JBS meat has been stopped uh, at the border numerous times in the last four or five years for either it's rotten, literally rotten meat, or it's tainted with hoof and mouth disease, or it, the most recent was uh, BSE, which is also known as mm -hmm. mad cow disease. And so, and yet the federal government continues to extend uh, these large uh, buying contracts to them. And I want you to, if you can tell people like how much these contracts are worth or and, and where the meat goes from those federal contracts, and then we'll talk about why there's no apparent scrutiny of this. Yeah. Contract. That's one of the biggest aspects here of how they continue to find J JBS entrenched through different parts of the federal government and being supported, continue to be supported and 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 incentivized through incentive through the federal government. Uh, not only did they get a hundred million dollars as a, a trade aid package uh, about seven years ago, 
They also continue to get millions and millions of dollars through contracts for public school lunches, institutional lunches, like for uh, nursing homes or different federally funded prisons. And these contracts contracts are significant. And while they've they've hit, you know, in 2019 there was more than 100 million even given just through some of these public school contracts. But in 2021 it was 38 on JBS or Pilgrim's Pride meat purchase and that was specifically even $6.5 million for pork actually even earmarked through Biden's like build back better economic oh agenda specifically earmarked for that. And so, you know, you see Deloro going to Vilsack and specifically asking why are we still using federal procurement to support and subsidize this foreign corrupt owned meat packer? And, you know, at the end of the day, Vilsack has blown these suggestions off and these criticisms off and, what we've seen as the response has been continued support of JBS, especially through these contracts. Well, it is, it is astonishing. We are paying for this, people. Taxpayer money. This is taxpayer money going to fund, uh, first of all, a company that has no need of any help. Secondly, they're very busy squashing our own meat production, and they get to bring their meat in, and uh, somebody grinds it in an American machine, and it gets labeled as a product of the USA, which is what all mm-hmm. American meat, you know, all American meat producers are freaking out over the fact that yep. we can't reinstate uh, country of origin labeling, or the country of origin labeling is so lax as to allow for that kind of, um, you know, shifty, uh, sketchy sort of, um, you know, uh, business as usual kind of a deal. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. just it is an incredible story, I think. I mean, the whole Batista Brothers saga is both fascinating and horrifying. Um, It's a cautionary tale. And that's why I wanted to write about it, because there are other foreign billionaires that are polluting our environment, who are hurting workers and are exporting and making a lot of profits. And Jameis is an extreme example, but... Right. Uh, Smithfield is another great example of mm-hmm. that. Uh, the Obama administration, uh, the CFI, CFI USA, US or whatever, I think is, is that right? It's, it's uh, CFIS. CFIS, yes. yeah. yeah. So this is, this for people who don't know, this is a sort of secretive organization within the government. It's a, it's a committee. It's a committee for foreign investment in the US. And they're supposed to vet sales of things like uh, selling American agricultural assets to foreign Mm -hmm. nationals. And for whatever reason, they very rarely bring the hammer down and say no. So I got interested in that topic myself a few years ago when Smithfield was sold uh, to Chinese. And, you know, everybody calls it the WH group. That's actually just an arm of the Chinese government. The Chinese government controls everything. So it's, you know, it's it's not like it's a, a different for-profit entity, not that it really matters, but it's like, I mean, we're really, it's like we're giving away the store here. We're giving them our water. We're giving them our mm-hmm. feed supplies. We're mm-hmm. giving our environment away. They're, they own one in four pigs in the United States, Smithfield Company does. And, uh, and we own the dead pigs in the manure. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, and no yeah. stopping this. No, it's astronomical. And there have been calls for years and years. Part of the reason I wanted to write this book is because I've seen the the letters being written to Janet Yellen and other federal regulators begging for CFIS investigations into the Batista's investments. They still own some 250 companies in 30 countries. And when you talk about Smithfield, I mean, there's also the billionaire uh, Wen Long, who's 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 the major owner. And not only uh, it is obviously, of course, backed by the state, but 
you also see crazy dividends that Wen Long has gotten in, 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 in 2019, 2020. He was making more than $100 million in his, his annual dividend payment to himself. Um, it was, uh, and that's the problem. You know, there, there's a lack of incentives to end up supporting better sustainable production. And are these billionaires going to be the ones that really want to put their money where their mouth is when, you know, the climate crisis gets even worse? I mean, that's that's really the issue I see here is, is when long was the Chinese state government going to have any interest whatsoever in making pork production more sustainable and making the actual drastic changes we need in the next few years before 2030 makes everything already impossible to change? I don't know. Yeah, right. I, I Very unlikely. Meanwhile, the Chinese, for people who aren't paying attention, are building these hotels for their pigs. Chloe, you've been on top of this, right? These, these, oh yeah, they're, they're story vertical, uh, you know, new capos, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just astonishing. Like, or you can raise like fifty or a hundred thousand pigs in one, you know, fifteen-story uh, unit. I mean, it's what you know, and no, and of course, even in China, they still they they also do not have any way of managing their effluent there. So they're confronting the same issues that we are, only writ even larger. You know, I mean, it's like you want to talk about water pollution, soil degradation, et cetera. Anyway, um, we are going to have to uh, wrap it up in about five minutes or so. I mean, we don't have to, but I just feel like people get bored. So I don't want to go on. Um, but I do want to talk. One thing I was curious about, um, you said JPS is publicly traded, but is it listed on the stock exchange? I, I, no, I, I I wrote about how JBS has been trying to go public again, and they've tried at different points over their over their past decade of of, of gaining all this this wealth. Mm. Um, because in by even you know this Swift acquisition happened two thousand eight. By two thousand eleven, already more than seventy percent of JBS's total revenues were coming from the U.S. So it, it it has all these different assets now in the U.S. and they've they've been trying to figure out a way to monetize that, either spinning it off as a U.S you know, spin off of, of just the U.S. assets or having the entire JBS company relist in the U.S. And that's also part of why you've seen them trying to clean up and making, I think, you know, more settlements or different agreements with the federal government over some of these allegations more than some of the other meatpackers, because at the end of the day, they want to clean up the accounts as they try to go public. And it's been pulled back even several times. They've, they've been talking about it even just for the past two years, but they always kind of seem to get pulled back into another scandal. Hmm. Yeah, well, um, and what would be the implications for the industry if they do acquire that listing on the New York Stock Exchange and, and go public again? A JPS U.S. listing would really be a one-time chance to reset the governance standards for the long term of the company and infuse it with credibility. And I need to be clear about what I mean that by that, because would it actually be credible? What what are you really investing in? But I think it'd be a way to almost, you know, greenwash the credibility of the company and to really kind of corporatize it once and for all. And there are folks that say that maybe that would be best for JBS to have that additional public scrutiny. But then there's also the question of shareholder returns. And whenever you're a publicly traded company, you have a fiduciary duty to continue to make more profits and to continue to make higher returns each quarter for your shareholders. And if not there, have the ability to sue you. There are short sellers that will come after you the whole bit. And that is a big deal because there is this fundamental incongruousness between a meat packer continuing to grow more, meat continuing to increase, demand continuing to increase, while at the same time, we really 
need the opposite to happen, but then there would be this legal force and a legal reasoning for them to be able to say, no, we have to keep increasing our meat production. We have to keep polluting. We have to keep taking up water where we shouldn't be. Um, and that could have lasting ramifications that drastically changes how these next 30 years could go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to talk about breaking up the four firm concentrations and stuff, but I think what we're going to do now is, um, first of all, talk about the fact that you're going to come back in January or early February to talk more about uh, this issue uh, of consolidation, but then also to talk about lab-grown meat and meat alternatives uh, like Beyond Burger, uh, you know, all of those um, new players in the meat field, including uh, being produced by Tyson and, and some of the other big players in the, in the mm -hmm. actual, in the real meat world. Um, and that, that to me is just a fascinating story in and of itself. I was uh, riveted by that part of the book, I, I have to say, but now I want you to have a chance to like promote yourself shamelessly. Um, where can people, people can buy the book everywhere, obviously. Um, are you, do you have more events? Is there a website you want to direct people to? Let's, let's like blow you up a little bit here. Raw Deal is available wherever books are sold. Go get it at your local indie. If they haven't gotten it in stock yet, ask for it. That would be awesome. But the tour will be going on, especially into 2023. We'll be doing an event with Farm to People in Brooklyn in early January. And then we'll be hitting the West Coast a bit into the spring. And I'm just really excited to get Raw Deal out there. It's been a massive effort from drawing from years and years of my reporting. Yeah. And I'm ready to really share it all with the world. Well, the world is really needs to read this book. Um, so, you know, people buy this for all of your friends who eat meat, not to say don't eat meat, but just think about where you're buying it and who you're buying it from. And no, not that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that um, the way consumers spend their money is going to change this issue. Um, but I do think that the more people are aware of what is happening in this sector of the agricultural uh, industry, uh, the more we can vote for legislation that will hopefully uh, break up some of these monopolies, um, you know, alter some of the buying practices, and generally uh, improve the meat supply, as well as the fate of the workers who do so much to get the food onto our table every single day. So um, that's my, you know, that is my interest is rectifying or leveling that playing field. I hate using the, the uh, cliche, but that's really what it is. It's like people have to get paid. The ranchers need to get paid. The poultry workers, the hog raisers, they all need to get paid. The people who cut it up have to get paid. Um, it, we have to do something about the way this industry is skewed towards uh, just a few lucky people who were smart enough to you know, do what they do. Anyway, Chloe, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me today. Have a wonderful holiday. Good luck with the book. Um, and I'll, I'll be in touch. We'll be talking to you in January. Can't wait to come back. So much more to talk about. You betcha. All right, doll. Thank you so much. And thank you to my sponsor as always. Uh, see you next time, folks. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in today. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.